Confluence Radio is a production of Confluence, a community-supported nonprofit that connects people to the history, living cultures, and ecology of the Columbia River system. Find us at confluenceproject.org. Hello, welcome to Confluence Radio, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River. I'm Colin Fogarty, Executive Director of Confluence. In our first inaugural issue of our new journal, Voices of the River, one theme emerged from the stories, research papers, poems, and artworks. In one way or another, Indigenous people continue to live with the legacies of their ancestors on a daily basis. We celebrated the launch of this new journal with some of the writers at the Oregon Historical Society in downtown Portland in November 2022. In this episode, we're going to hear them discuss their pieces and the process it took to develop them. The speakers include Rachel Cushman, who is Chinook, and her spouse, Chance Whiteyes, who is Oneida. Sean Smith is also Chinook, and Emily Washines is Yakima. The discussion was moderated by Confluence Managing Editor Lily Hart. She began by inviting the speakers to introduce themselves. Uh, my name is Sean Smith, and I have an essay in this journal about the discovery of the identity of our family's furthest back uh, indigenous ancestor. It was a, a woman that sort of lived in our family lore for, for uh, our childhood and, and my mom's uh, lifetime. And through some internet sleuthing uh, a year or so ago, we actually were able to identify this individual who sits atop our indigenous family tree. We, we learned her name, which we uh, didn't know before. She was known as Louisa to us, which we assumed was an anglicized version of, of her proper name. And, and my essay that I contributed to, to this journal is, is about the discovery of, of her name and her identity and, uh, and what that meant to our family. My name is Emily Washings. I'm enrolled Yakima and also have Skokomish and Cree lineage. Uh, I wanted to write an article about a fishing rights case that stretched from 1914 to 2020. And, you know, why did we have so many periods of like fighting and reaffirming treaty rights? As well as, um, I wanted to write this case of my great great grandfather and you know the words that he had shared and the wisdom and brilliant strategy that our our yakima people had in that 1914 through 1921 period when we were fighting the fishing case still needed english interpreters yet we were navigating systems and um, we ended up losing that case and one of my grandfather's, uh, great-grandfather's words was, you know, my heart is going to be broken if I cannot secure these rights for my people. And often that's the way this time period is depicted, right? Because sometimes when you look back at history, you only read one part and it stays with you. And then you just like tell that narrative of it. And I really wanted to tell the narrative of it where our, our elders had the brilliant strategy. to They figured out how to lobby legislature. I'm Rachel Cushman, Naika Yachel, Naika Tulkum, and Saika Chinook Indian Nation, and Saika Klatsip, Kathlamet, Wakayakum, Wilipa, Pilor Chinook. Hello, my name is Rachel Cushman. I am a hereditary and elected leader of the Chinook Indian Nation. I currently serve as the Secretary Treasurer of Tribal Council and 
I'm a hereditary leader through my grandfather, Chief Wasilta of the Klatsa people. I play a lot of different roles in this life. Most importantly, I'm a mother, and I talk about that in my article that I shared with my husband. So we'll, after I introduce myself and he introduces himself, we can talk about the article a little bit. But I'm a PhD student in Indigenous Race and Ethnic Studies at the University of Oregon, where I study a lot of different things. But most importantly, I study the impacts of lack of federal recognition on tribes because the Chinook Indian Nation is currently not recognized and we are fighting for recognition. Hi, my name is Chance Wideyes. Uh, I'm an enrolled member of the Oneida Tribe of Wisconsin. I'm also Oglala Lakota. Um, my ancestors are from further further east. Um, so when I married Rachel, this whole canoe journey stuff was new to me. I didn't know how to swim. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> um, and uh, but that's what I've been. That's what I've been doing the past ten or so years mm -hmm. is is uh, going on travel canoe journeys and rolling with Chinook Indian Nation. Um, I'm an assistant professor of Native American Studies at Southern Oregon University. Yeah, so our article um, is a shared piece that we wrote together. It's about canoes and canoe culture and using canoe as a teaching tool in the classroom, um, not just, you know, within cultural settings, but in within uh, academic settings with K through 12 and in our college classrooms that we both teach in. You're listening to Confluence Radio. In addition to the writing, the Voices of the River Journal is a visual publication. Many of the articles are paired with artworks by designer Tommy Grayeyes, a Navajo artist who also designed the cover. And Rachel and Chance's story included a photograph from a longtime friend of the Chinook Nation, Amarin White. So our image is the centerfold in the, <laughs> the uh, journal. Um, and it's a photo of my first journey being a skipper. So I'm in the back. Um, and it's done by Amarin White. And Amarin White has been following the Chinook Indian Nation for, let's see, my youngest son is seven, right? Yeah. Uh, for eight years, she, uh, we met her at an event um, at the University of Oregon when my oldest son, Kaneem, who I talk about in the journal, um, was not even one years old. And she took a photo of him. And she's a, a photojournalist, Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist. And she's like, can I take a picture of your child? And we became friends. And then she started following Chinook and taking photos for Chinook and has been running the Chinook Indian Nation's Instagram account and really has built, helped build up a following. And uh, But, you know, Amarin has been, she's watched my children grow up. She's watched a lot of really major moments. And so it's just really amazing and an honor to have that photo be there and to have her be a part, part of it as well. And um, yeah, that was a pull to West Seattle and uh, it was really, really exciting. And, you know, I've been, I've been a lead puller for the Canoe family for a long time. I won't say how many years, a long time. And it was just really great. That's 2019 to become, a, to be asked to be a skipper. So that means that my community trusts me into guiding and making sure that they stay safe. I'm a visual learner, so I was really happy to know that visuals would be strong in this piece. It's very hard to describe some things when you don't have, like, visuals, when you can't show people something, when you can't see it. And then on top of that, we haven't been seeing each other 
for how many years now? You know, um, so when I had talked to uh, Lily and Tommy, the artist, about my great grandfather, we selected a photo of his regalia, the regalia he wore on our Capitol steps when he was uh, fighting that fishing case and going through, and we wanted to depict him in that regalia at the site in Prosser, which we call Tuptot in our language, and where his great-grandchildren still fish to this day. I think the aspect that I appreciated was that Tommy was able to capture his age. And I think that, you know, that age and being an elder, you're able to see some things. And I feel like... um you know, he was looking to secure rights for his people, you know, in future generations. He was thinking about me. And I love that Tommy was able to kind of have brightness with the artistic piece. There's light there. I don't feel like it's like sadness of like, hey, this guy just lost this fishing case. It's like this guy lost this fishing case, but secured a legislative fix. And this site is um, a known place. So that's uh, what I wanted to share about kind of the process and then about uh, Tommy's visual elements without Tommy being here. I'm kind of taking some liberty with his artistic license there, but uh, I think he'd uh, agree. I mean, I worked with Tommy too, and I will say it was a massive privilege to work with, uh, you know, a visual artist. Um, and I got on a, a Zoom or a phone call with him or something, and he, he just said, you know, he asked to, me to describe the piece, and, and it was a cool experience to try and um, describe what the kind of core elements of it were that, that I thought might be neat to be visually represented. Um, and then to see his first draft, like I, I cried when I when I saw it. it was it was incredible to see that someone could read the piece because he read it um, and took you know my my sort of just off the wall ramblings to him and and came up with um, with the family tree being held by by this you know discovered ancestor and. Um, and, and, you know, standing in the river, which is central to the Chinook people and, and the journal itself and all the articles, really, the river the river is central. Um, and he just did an incredible job. And uh, so, so cool to, to have that associated with this piece. We're hearing writers in the new Voices of the River journal from Confluence. Managing editor Lily Hart steered the discussion toward the editorial process the team developed. Try to do it differently than a full-on, like, Western press. One way that we did it is not only did we have some, like, advise, our advisors and reviewers read it, we gathered some of the authors together um, on Zoom to read each other's work and talk through it, and so it was a more open and sort of grounded and really beautifully thoughtful discussion. So I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on sort of that process, but also just maybe like thoughts you have on indigenous approaches to peer review and like restructuring that sort of process. My doctoral program was, you know, they told us we can't have a joint dissertation. And looking at my cohort, like the the, the idea that my cohort and I couldn't have a, a, a team orientation was odd to me because I'm bouncing ideas off of all these people in my cohort. So it wasn't just me writing, it was all of us. 
And so I think for, for us, it's like, can we, can we collaborate more? Can we, can we bounce ideas off of each other? You know, does this work? Does this not work? Um, and I think that was kind of the spirit of, of our article was this kind of collaborative effort, which I think is changing slowly in academia, but it's, those kinds of changes are very slow. So, and, and maybe I'm impatient. Yeah, uh, this this was really a refreshing process. I've been a part of some peer reviews, uh, university presses, and those processes can be quite arduous and uh, intense. Luckily, I've had pretty good experiences with them, though. I didn't get to participate in the writer's uh, Zoom because... Being a graduate student, I'm like constantly busy, and then an elected official and a parent is just really hard. But um, I did get to talk to Carly, and I did get to talk to Sean about our our articles, um, and that was really nice to be able to see them and and to to hear from them and uh, participate in that way. But yes, I I love. I think this is mine and Chance's second or third publication together. Um, as partners, we try to support each other in the work, um, and it's always nice to be able to do that um, and have an avenue for doing that. Um, because while we, we we do separate things from one another, um, we love to write about our children, and so we write about them any chance we can. Yeah, yeah and I think, um, when I think of this question, I also think about the next set of authors that might be coming through and I think about this Yakima elder and writer that contacted me um, through message yesterday and I was like I read your article and I think it's so great and I've been meaning to write for Confluence for a while and I think that any act of pedestaling by this person I just am surprised by I'm shocked by surprised by because this is somebody that I read a lot while I was in college, referenced their work and their writing and their words. And I think, like, about telling them about this process, like, they make it really straightforward and nice, and it's almost like they try to build community mm -hmm. within it so that we have a little bit of, um, you know, even though, as was shared earlier, we don't have a consistent, like, theme, we are aware of what each other is working on, and I think it becomes less of a um, of a pr of a scary process, I guess. So we're all kind of going down these like rabbit holes and getting curious about things. But in writers and in this, of course, this kind of era and time of like being secluded, you can really get in your head mm -hmm. of a lot, a lot of things. You can question a lot of things. You can wonder, like, am I even making sense to anybody? Like, especially, I have three kids, 13 and under. And so, you know, when you're having to reiterate, like, numerous times or every day, like, you need to empty the dishwasher, and then you try to go and write or edit something, you can question a lot about what is, <laughs> you're making, is this making sense? <laughs> um, and I will say, there is, you know, Lily's kind message, you know, Hello, did you see the edits that we are recommending? And um, <laughs> those texts. Yes. These are very soothing editorial messages in this process, and um, I am happy to share that. <laughs> uh, I found the peer oriented peer review process intimidating, I will say. <laughs> um, I'm used to just writing 
by myself. It's a more of a solitary, secluded experience, which I like. I like. <laughs> I like. I like getting in my head. I never question anything when I'm doing it by myself. It's always right. <laughs> it's always the exact right word. Um, now the editing process was was kind. I will say, and but the collaborative process was a lot cooler and more. Um, rewarding than I was expecting. You're listening to Confluence Radio. In the final part of our discussion about the voices of the River Journal, the writers examined their own personal creative process. There was a lot of talking first. I think for it was a lot of talking, a lot of communication. Um, you know, our our practice was already something that we had formed, I think. And so then all of a sudden it was like, well, not many people are writing about this. Maybe we should write about it. And so I think that's that's kind of where we came. Um, we do a lot of <laughs> revising. I'll, I'll throw her something. Does this make sense to you? And then she'll she'll read it and be like, no, 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 Chance. And then you know she'll she'll throw stuff at me. Just like that. Yeah, she'll she'll throw stuff at me, and I'll be like, yeah, this this looks pretty good. You know all this. Um, and I honestly I don't think I could write. I mean, everything that I've published and written, I, I've always done a collaboration with somebody else. I have to have somebody else there being like, yes, Chance, okay, this this works. Or no, Chance, that's not what that's supposed to look like. I can't do this independently. Um, I, I'm jealous that, that this is your your space to, to be, you know, independent because I, I can't do that. Um, that's just me. Well, you can. You did a dissertation all by yourself. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean... Really, uh, for this one in particular, it was a lot of conversations back and forth. And um, I'm going to be honest, we got our paper in, like our proposal in, like last minute. (laughs) And then we turned in our paper last minute. And um, we wrote it actually quite quickly, though, uh, you know, because it's about you know, trying to find the space and to, to do that. And we have a million other things going and papers to grade and things like that. And it was never just the right time. So I just sat down and started writing and I like threw it over to him. And I was like, this is what I've written so far. What do you got to add to it? And he was like, here, I'll add this. And I was like, cool, then I'll move in over here and work on the transition here. And so it was just passing it back and forth and having, starting with the conversation you know, a verbal conversation and then having a conversation on paper with one another. And yeah, so that was really our process and me poking him and being like, did you read the what I added? Like, come on, add to it because I want to add more to it, but I can't add more to it until you have. Um, yep. and, and so that's how we did it. <laughs> you want me to go where you Yeah, go. Okay. Um, well, for me, I think that I was very excited to write about this. So I think anything I was like curious about or excited to write about, I like to have some kind of like brain dumping session at first because, I mean, you have this 2020 uh, Washington State Supreme Court, one of which includes a native justice. And they're looking at this 1921 ruling and saying, this was racist. And so I feel like there was a lot of like emotion that doesn't necessarily always get conveyed in something that's more like um, academically written. Mm-hmm. And I had to kind of, um, I don't want to say temper that a little bit, but I kept going and, and reacting. Like if there was a reaction video alongside me writing, 
that would probably be like a really exciting element, but it would be repetitive. <laughs> Every time I'd be watch her video or be quoting her, I'd be like, yeah, it was racist. They said it's racist against my great grandfather. This is wrong. It wasn't founded in law. And so um, I think that there's, you know, in the writing process, you want to find things you're excited about and you want to find people to work with that support that vision. And um, again, you know, it's, in the writing community, there's some ghosting that can happen <laughs> when you're like, I, su I submitted this article here, but this one feels like a better fit, and I'm really sorry, but I'm going to maybe, I guess, miss that deadline <laughs> and work on this one. Um, and so I, I would say process-wise, for me, I really look for what I get excited and curious about, and then I have a side-by-side -side, like journal entries that don't make it into what's actually published, but I, I acknowledge that I process a lot when I write. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't write about uh, the So Happy case, um, tradition on trial, salmon scam, all the different, um, there was two court cases, one that we had with the federal government, um, and then another one that we actually had at Yakima, uh, which was the longest, it's still the longest running trial that ever happened. I checked. <laughs> um, I didn't write it for the Confluence article, but I have written it for others. Uh, and I, it's called Fish Warriors um, that I wrote about the uh, Bologna decision, which was right before the Bolt decision, um, which is U.S. v. Oregon. Uh, so, yeah, it definitely there is, a, there is an important case there and so happy um, people... Uh, from the Yakima are known for fighting for fishing rights. I've been on the boat with them. When I went to write the article, I was right there, and they uh, took a turn and splashed water in my face, and they said, now you're baptized. <laughs> I mean, there was no funny story about how mine came to be, but it, other than it was fast. Um, sometimes... You know, writing can be a torturous process. Um, and then sometimes, like, you know, if there's any music fans, you've probably read your favorite musician or songwriter say they wrote that song in 15 minutes or whatever, and you can't believe it. Um, that, that, that one was more this experience for me. This one just kind of poured out of me the night that we found uh, her name. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that, that one... That one was uh, just kind of came from someplace else. What do you see as a future opportunity for your work, or maybe also just things you want people to take forward into the future? I mean, you can say your flow. dream. No. I mean, for me, it's uh, <laughs> uh, if we're going to do use the canoe analogy again, it's, you know, put the paddle in the water, you know, keep pulling. Um, you know, every single the first day of every single class I, I teach, I go over the rules of the canoe just to set the framework. And that's that's very good. We're we're introducing indigenous pedagogies into our classrooms, and so I think the next steps for me is is making more room for that. I have a colleague that has a similar, not a similar, but a, a different way of teaching her courses. She takes the idea of a pumpkin. If you can imagine a pumpkin in the middle of the room, everybody has a different perspective, and pumpkins aren't perfect all the way around, right? So you might see, I might be sitting over here, I see a little bit of green, and then on the other side of the room, somebody's going to say, no, it's not green, it's orange. Well, we're both right. So we need everybody's perspective to come to the table in order to make sense of the world and all these kinds of things, right? So creating more space for indigenous pedagogy, specifically in colleges, just because that's kind of where I am, but, you know, normalizing that there's different ways of learning and teaching, 
um, that should be recognized and valued. So that's that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, um, I, I envision us doing again another publication, expanding on this and including more. Um, I mean, I've already shared some of this work with my children's teachers, and I have already shared some of this work with. Um, the University of Oregon School of Ed. They have a Sapsaquatla Indian teacher program that I've been working with them, um, and we're doing decolonization and education. Um, and so, so hopefully to do some more printing. But actually, I I have a dissertation to write, and I have been um, procrastinating by writing sci-fi, which is really really great. And so I'm really into Indian time travel right now. So I, I that might be next. I'm not sure. Time travel sounds like a good uh, future opportunity. No. <laughs> um, that was a pun. But it, you know. I think when I think of the article, you know, I had originally pitched this to a different uh, journal. And then I pulled that because I really thought about the accessibility for um, kids in my community. And uh, it was really important to me to kind of house that where this information would be accessible and referenceable. And so when I think about future opportunities, I, again, as well as others uh, have shared about, you know, use of it in the classroom and being able to provide tools and resources for others to have reference points. Um, and I also feel it's very important when you, when you're writing for academic journals and peer-reviewed publications, there's a lot of rules sometimes. And, you know, they say things like everything has to be in English, for example. And um, in this instance, I was able to include itchy skein, uh, which linguists call Sahaptin, even though that translates directly to strangers of the land, <laughs> which is why we tend to utilize our, our, um, our own word for it, which is itchy skein. And I include eight place names in the article. Uh, Lalique is one of them, uh, Rattlesnake Mountain, which when you I heard... Uh, Ed Edmo talk about Missoula floods. This is uh, uh, the mountain and place name that we talk about in reference to those uh, floods a lot. And so it's, it's a very important uh, his, historical site to us and, and current modern day site that we work to protect. And so when I think about future opportunities, I always think of our place names. I think about, you know, pushing the scientists to always utilize our native language when they do their different uh, fancy schmancy studies about restoration management and etc. And when they push back, I'm like, listen, I see you referencing Latin. <laughs> <laughs> so you can reference itchy skin. And also when I really have to push, because I think every single one of us get to that point every once in a while where we're like, okay, I'm going to lay this down. You are ignoring a data set that stretches back thousands of years if you do not include our language. Why as a scientist, why as somebody that's utilizing different resources, would you work and fight against that? And so when I think of future opportunities, I like to have that. And then I also like to say things like, and you can look at my peer-reviewed article <laughs> in Voices of the River. Um, you know, that validation is important. And it's also scary. I think I was so nervous coming up here because it's dawning on me that we're going to have this article that's in this journal that people are going to read and reference and cite. And um, I think there's, you know, just some some nerves that come 
with telling such important uh, stories? I'm more of an essayist, not an academic writer like like <laughs> these smart people up here. Um, so I, I don't know if there's future opportunities for for me for this piece. I I will say, and I alluded to this in my in a second ago. I, I think everything that I write and publish is, is for uh, an audience of two, which is my, my two sons. Um, I, I think about what I hope that they pick up when they're grown-ups and, um, and when they're understanding about who, who I was. Um, I'm just trying to leave some Easter eggs for them, I think, a little bit. Thanks for listening to Confluence Radio. To find out more about Confluence, our sites along the Columbia River, our programming, and even more about the Voices of the River Journal, check out our website, confluenceproject.org. There, you can also buy a copy of the journal, and we'll mail it right to you. Remember, Confluence is a community-supported nonprofit. We can only do this work because of the generous support from the Friends of Confluence, and that's you. Join us today at confluenceproject.org.